Uh, I wanted to mention before we get going too far into the talk that uh, the teaching for the talk is now. And what I mean by that is that the words are not meant for you to take out and deliberate on them and ruminate a little bit or have a nice conversation with a friend about it. It's really meant to enter into your psyche as it's being delivered. And to do that, you have to be available for that. You have to be a certain, there has to be a certain conditioned way that you are available so that the words can access where they're supposed to go. And what you have to, what we all have to do is be receptive, of course, but that also requires a kind of attention and a cute alertness and the willingness to follow the words into your experience. Just let them direct you inside yourself so that you get a sense of what is being said and the experience that is accompanying it in yourself. So to remember that, a good Dharma talk or all Dharma talks are really meant to do that. They're not intellectual affairs. Their teaching is immediate. So saying we'll dive off the board of the next dependent origination theme uh, and perhaps we can uh, back up just a moment and say what dependent origination is about. It's, it's really how we get lost in our imagination. How we uh, frivol away our time uh, as alive and creative organisms on the drift of thought and the turmoil of our conflicts within that medium of thinking. And how we get lost in that, how do we focus and invest the truth of our lives into our thinking process as opposed to the living experience that is immediately available but not very accessible to most of us. How, is that, how does that happen? How do we lose our footing, so to speak, in, in this world? And uh, you have to have some curiosity to want to know that. You have to have some willingness to go through the adventure with these talks again so that you can accompany the way the words are meant to describe each of our own experiences. But that's what, that's what dependent origination is. It's about the drift away. And we're sort of in the middle of these 12 links. And I'll sort of set the table for us by reminding all of us that the lead link in this is ignorance. It's the willingness not to pay attention. Uh, it's the willingness to join the thought as the thought and not see it as a thought. Did you get that? And as you join a thought as a thought, then it'll take you wherever the thought takes you. It will take you to its content, to its intensity, and as we will talk about tonight, to its feeling tone. And then from there, you'll elaborate upon that thought by personalizing it into your own narrative, and then on and on it goes. So the counterlink, the counterpoint that we offer as a way to dissuade each of us from entering thought is the tool of mindfulness. 
Now let me just say a few words about mindfulness because you hear about it all the time. It's certainly on every website around and it's being secularized which is good because it no matter how you become aware some awareness is better than no awareness being a little conscious is better than being totally unconscious so I don't have any dispute with secular awareness but it doesn't take you quite far enough in the journey that we're on because in mindfulness mostly it's self-governed you decide what you want to be mindful of and you then move in accordance with where your conditioning might take you so that you can be more aware of those things that you might be more enjoyable that might be more enjoyable to you and so it enhances pleasure and um, allows you to sort of feel like you're the guiding light of your own life uh, but what we're using or encouraging the use of mindfulness for when we are relating it to dependent origination is changing the power of the ignorance which has kept us blinded to all of the ways that these links keep us enmeshed in our thinking process and waking up out of them. Now the entry point of where we decide to allow ourselves to enter this dependent chain can be anywhere. For most lay people, it's in emotions. It's where the emotions are often the key component, the key formation of mind that gets our attention sufficiently so that we wake up to the fact that we're depressed or that we're angry or that we're whatever the emotion might be. And so uh, mental formations is a very important link within this deliverance for lay people. For monks who have more solace, more alone time, are living in a quieter lifestyle, then they can enter uh, probably at the more subtle level of feelings, which I will get to in just a minute, which are different than emotions or they can enter in contact, or they can enter a, a, different, a different link. So what we're looking for is something that has enough decibel to wake us up. So we say, oh God, I'm suffering, right? And for most of us, our lives are so chaotic and hectic that it takes an awful lot. The alarm bell has to go off for some time for us to even realize that we're in a point of contraction or distress and for us to say, oh, wait a minute, let me be mindful of this moment. Now, mindfulness is simply presence of mind. Let's just define it that way. Just the willingness to be present, having the sense of presence of mind about what is occurring. Seeing things that are occurring as they're occurring. And as we get quieter within our mindfulness so that we're not uh, adding a lot of thought overlay to what we're seeing, to that presence of mind, there is less distortion that we are bringing within that mindfulness. The more we talk our way through the moment of being mindful, the more that thought distorts the perception that mindfulness is offering. It's like light going through water. It hits the water and then refracts 
in a different way. If mindfulness hits our thinking, then it diffracts in accordance with how we're thinking in, in that moment. So the quieter we become within ourselves as we observe these mechanisms, these chain, these links in, in the chain, the more we will begin to see them in a non-personal way and will be able to generally get a sense of how they have a often catastrophic result when we follow them and how we can step out of them at any particular time. So there's a tremendous uh, need here to kind of clean up our mindfulness. And our, our mindfulness, when it gets very clean, when it gets very quiet, is the same as discernment. I've talked about what discernment is. Discernment is, is the quality of when we're of awareness that's absolutely quiet, that just sees life in, 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 its, in its manifested form. It just sees what's there. It doesn't add absolute, adds absolutely nothing to what is there. It just sees it for what it is. So mindfulness, when it's very quiet, becomes discernment. And so mindfulness, which is self-driven when it becomes very quiet, becomes the awareness, awareness that is no longer self-driven, that is just this all-encompassing awareness that each of us have access to, but we often don't perceive because we are standing in front of the awareness with our mindfulness. I don't know if that made any sense to you, but if you stand with your awareness, if you sit there and you think, look, I'm going to be aware of my hand, that's fine, you can be aware of your hand, but you're cutting off the all-encompassing awareness that is more inclusive than just seeing your hand. And it's until you give up the seat of you being the one who is mindful that that encompassing awareness can come out. At once that seat is released, then the awareness can come out of itself, can venture out from the formation of the sense of self that holds it very contracted. So I don't expect you to understand that, but you can live the experience of it. If you're willing right at this moment, if you're just quiet for your, with yourself, instead of wondering what he's saying, you'll feel this sense of living presence that is not human-driven, which is not a function of egoic energy. You go, whoa, what happened here? Now you have a sense of what awareness in the discerning awareness is as opposed to what mindfulness is. So just to know those, the difference between those two is very important. <clears throat> because mindfulness, as we usually invoke it, has a sense of personal chatter about it. I want to be mindful of this and I don't want to be mindful of that and I'm impatient with how mindful I am and all of that, that really shuts the lens down, closes the aperture. So let us venture out to where we were uh, in our last link, which was contact. We had set the table for dinner guests, if, as you might remember. We will invite those dinner guests back around the table and at the table, sitting in the front seat as the host is ignorance. He's the one that invited everyone to come, or he's the one, because of his presence, everyone shows up. And around the dinner table are uh, 
the other guests, which I will, mental formations, I'll try to get through. Mental formations, which are the formations of mind that are constantly in movement and in uh, proximity and are telling us various things about the nature of whatever the contact or situation is. They're the emotions and the feelings and the ideas and the thoughts and all of this middle com- mental uh, commotion that's going on up there. And next to him is consciousness. Consciousness is the factor that the unification factor that thinks all of this turmoil is solidified and unified into a single presence, into a single thing, a single entity. And then there is name and form. Name and form has a wonderful function and it keeps what it attends to as outside or objective to itself. So it's all, it makes something distant. As soon as I name something, it's separate from the namer, the person who's naming it. And it keeps something known and very secure within that knowledge. So that's the function of name and form. And these are all, again, uh, dinner gifts. And then there is um, contact. And contact is that moment in which something comes into our attention, is into awareness itself. And we're all sitting around, all of these five components are sitting around waiting for the meal to be served. They want, they're hungry. They have dinner. They want something to show up. Now, it's interesting that contact is at the dinner table because the meal, you would think the contact would come when the meal was being served. Oh, the meal is then, and then all of the different chains of events would happen around the formation of that meal. I love that meal. That's my favorite meal. I can't... She's getting more meat than I'm getting, or I don't know, you know, all that. (laughs) But the fact that contact has already shown up means that there's already something occurring there even though the actual physical meal has not been, has not occurred, has not been brought out. What has happened is that there's an expectation, an idea of what the meal's going to be. And contact makes a connection with that idea and all of the feeding frenzy gets going. The mental formations start in abstraction to the real meal that will be brought out soon. These ideas start becoming their own imaginative response of what the meal is going to be like. And so it's a, it's a, a coalescing group of guests who are impatient for the meal. There's some agitation in their expectation. Why isn't this meal out here already? And I'm really looking forward to this or that. And so the whole thing is off and running, even though the meal has yet to come out. Now... If you think of life, your life, my life, that's mostly how we live contact. We live it in an imaginative form. We live it as an expectation prior to the arrival of whatever it is that we are expecting. That anticipatory life, that life of what is coming up, is the way that we lose ourselves, is the dysfunctionality, is the imaginative response that to dependent origination is supposed to be showing us. You see, we're already lost in the world of sensual data and the memories that that mental formations are bringing up and the reactivity within that and the liking and the disliking and the all of it, all of that stuff. 
Oh, and yet we want to be good guests who are trying to sit on our hands and not show our impatience. All of that is there at the dinner table prior to the arriving of the meal. And then, of course, once the meal does show up, there's another whole set of reactions that come because it may or may not have lived up to our expectations. Well, that's not what I want. I didn't want that. I'm a vegetarian and they're serving, I don't know, on and on. And so there's this kind of disappointment that comes when the contact to the material, to the form, arises as opposed to the contact that had been previously uh, associated with the expectation of that arrival. Now, it would be interesting for some of you to just take that as a homework assignment just to be aware of how driven each of us are in terms of expectation and how upsetting those expectations unmet or met are in the course of a day just as a course of a day you know all of us are moving far ahead of where we are actually living thinking the world into place because we have a meeting and we know exactly what's going to be said or on and on and then those actual situations arrive in some distorted way distorted in the sense that they aren't living up to what we had planned and then there is this whole fallout from that which is discouragement or whatever the emotional response is because it has it's skewed it's not the way I wanted it to be and there we have a whole set of very difficult and conflictual information coming in. So it's interesting to note that and at this dinner table, there's no me. I mean, which one of those six seats that are now being filled, because now I'm bringing feeling in, feeling, as I will define shortly, is the next link in dependent origination, but none of them have the name Rodney. None of them. Any, if, you, if they introduced themselves, none of them would introduce themselves as me, as Rodney, as Judy, as John, as Bill. Where does Rodney come in? Where does, well, Rodney isn't there, except in your imagination. My imagination in this case. It takes the confluence of all of those, all of those seats, all of the activity, all of those seats have to meet in order for Rodney to come in to, to be present. Now Rodney takes the seat at the head of the table, sitting on ignorance's lap, or perhaps ignorance on my lap, whichever way you want to put it, and from that seat with ignorance weight upon me, I can now claim to have authority over that table. My thoughts, my emotions, my feelings, my ideas, my naming, everything, all of it. And consciousness, which is the unity factor, which is trying to corral everything into a single sense of something, that's the function of consciousness, or one of the functions. It obliges me tremendously, because that's why I think it's all going on in my mind, my consciousness. And so now, 
I can, I can take authority and I can get upset with the cook because they're late. I can do all these things on my terms. But it's, where is it? Where, I mean, where is it? Where is the I? Where is the me? Where is the Rodney that claims to have such potency and such reactive activity and such righteousness for a late dinner? You see? And it can't be found. In fact, you see, I, as I mentioned last week, a friend of mine I'll call Judy, it's not a real name, just had an accident and a car hit her and she um, lost some of her brain capacity or has for the last month or so in which she's been at Harborview. And I'm we're at the Caring Bridges website where they keep you updated and post how the person is doing. Keeps Her husband keeps saying, you know, part of her is coming back and this part is coming out and she's showing her full self and I'm sure it's not going to be long before Judy comes back into full form. Well, Judy, this is Judy. Judy is the process. It isn't some remembrance of some person who had a mind, and that's Judy. Judy is all of these partially damaged neurons firing, but not in sequential, not in the order that they used to fire. Fire, fire. And whatever hundred million billion of them are firing, but are firing inaccurately or firing distortedly, or perhaps some of them are damaged, I don't know. That's Judy. There isn't another Judy that we're waiting to show up. Judy is a, the process of that firing. Do you see? And yet somehow we think, well, she's back there somewhere. We just have to heal her brain so that she can really be who she used to be. It's interesting when you begin to see it in truth of the situation rather than what we would like to believe in the situation. So this sense of feelings, and I'll get to it now, <clears throat> it's an important one. In Buddhist terms, uh, the uh, feelings are of the nature of three things. They're conditioned, first of all, they're conditioned upon contact, with the arising of contact, there will always be a feeling, a conditioned, a conditioned arising of a feeling tone on contact. And it will be pleasant, unpleasant, or not pleasant or unpleasant. Well, that's a, that's a little bit weird because it's like saying it's hot or cold or neither hot or cold. It can't be anything else, right? So it sort of covers all the bases. But if you start looking at what the feelings are, as they arise, you'll see that they are just conditioned. I mean, what you're sensing in the moment, how a feeling is attaching itself to whatever it is that you see, is partially due to what you expect to see, a mental formation, the idea, the memory of what that word has meant to you. So now name and form is coming in which arises, a certain memory arises in relationship to the name that you've just given something, and an expectation arises with the nature of that food that's arriving, and then disappointment or whatever, because the feeling is also associated with the idea and it's associated with the actual scene of the meal itself. And those two are often in conflict with one another, and because we can become outraged 
outraged because the feeling of the anticipation doesn't match the feeling of the actual meeting of the meal when it is served. There can be all kinds of difficulty. But in fact, the feeling is just a feeling. It's just whether something's pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And if we just sense the feeling of something, like right now, the feeling of the room, the temperature of the room, there's the temperature and then there's a sense of whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neither to you. Maybe you don't even notice it, which means, which is very important, because if you don't notice it, then that's a neutral feeling. That's a feeling in which it doesn't weigh in one way or another. But if it's pleasant, then I'm sure that you can come to a deeper sense of rest and relaxation. But if it's unpleasant, there may be agitation and a wishing of why there was an air conditioning in this room or where the fans are or, or anything like that. But you can see that each of the feelings can set off a whole tone and circumstance and, and chatter in and of themselves. Oh, this is perfect. God, I just wish all the days were this perfect. It's perfect whatever the temperature is. Maybe tomorrow will be the same. If it's so, I'll go swimming. Oh, yeah, I'll go swimming. I'll go to Madison Park because there aren't very many people. Oh, I don't know, Madison Park, the last... On it goes, you see. <laughs> we just get lost. It's, it's water on oil. It just shoots itself across because we didn't recognize the feeling as a feeling. It's just a feeling. It's just pleasant. So, or unpleasant, or neither unpleasant. So, the Buddha said at some point in his... In his, uh, in his practice that he realized all he was ever doing was chasing pleasant feelings. Now this is a country who epitomizes that. And may I say that the greater a country, a, the more materialistic a country is, the more they're dependent upon feelings. Makes sense, doesn't it? Because they are using their materialism to offset whatever inside they feel they need to get rid of or, or to assuage. So it drives us. Feelings drive us. But they drive us because ignorance is sitting there and we're not attending to them. We're not aware that they're even arising. We're just, we're long down the road. We've we're far down the road of our chatter before we even realize that we're in trouble. But if, when you're aware, when you're conscious, when you don't want to be that disturbed or that, or when you've just seen the stretch of what pleasant, pursuing the pleasant takes us, when you felt the stretch marks of where it takes us. Now, at this point, I want to intercede. I don't want people to say, oh, I've heard all this, you know. I, I mean, the first talk I ever heard, pursuing the pleasant and avoiding the unpleasant. Okay, when is he going to get to something? Like, okay, if you knew it, you wouldn't be involved in it any longer. So how many of you really know it? Let's be honest. Not a single hand should go up. Okay, so that means that we need, yes, we know it intellectually, but we have to actually perceive this thing. We have to realize the disturbing news is that we are dependent, our lives are enslaved within our feelings, within the feelings of 
so where do these feelings come from you see they're not something that comes from outside they didn't get conditioned conditioning is not outside of us it's inside of us if you grow up in your family and you don't like broccoli then when it's served you're not going to you're going to have an unpleasant feeling now later in life when you have matured beyond the family situation maybe you can have a different orientation to broccoli but likely not when you're involved in the house as a child so this this these conditionings can change over time uh, but the point is that whatever they are they need to be recognized because they have a pull and the pain of that pull well that pull takes us starts initiates the process of the imagination remember dependent origination is the understanding of how we lose ourselves within imagination feelings are the onset of that there's contact and upon contact there is feeling that that's the beginning of drawing us out that's the beginning of of a set of the of the snowball just starting down the hill gathering momentum speed and mass and it goes very quickly it speeds up very quickly and you get this sense of what happens here because those are the next links the next chairs at the table that we will be filling in but just getting a sense now of this of how simple a feeling is they are always here with us no matter what the situation is i mentioned and they're of pain associated with each one of them when they're extended beyond our awareness for instance liking something something pleasant also has a pain component to it which is the basis of the whole buddha's teaching when he talks about desire because it's elaborating far beyond the capacity of satisfaction the elaboration is far beyond the capacity for it to actually satisfy and so then there is a a recourse there's a backlash uh when you realize that you didn't get what you wanted from s- the situation or that you wanted it to last longer than its natural lifespan so you had something and it was so delicious that you wish wish you could take some home but the, there's no more left and so there's this duration component that cuts off the ability to satiate ourselves within a feeling but even satiation i mean even if you had the best feeling and you tried to elaborate it and its duration was long enough so that you could how many of you could stay in a bath warm perfect temperature for what all day or try uh, here's one just try to lie in bed perfectly comfortable all day it it doesn't the pleasantness of it changes So if you stay long enough it's going to change on you, okay? Then there's the aversive response. That's the unpleasant quality where we're thinking, you know, how do I get out of this situation? And you can't. And so there's this kind of coarse sandpaperish feeling to being in life when it's not going your way and the brittle almost coarse rub that it has on you. as you have to endure life as an unpleasant and difficult moment and then 
There's the neutral, the one that says, you know, I'm unground, I, the one that's just sort of lost in sort of abstraction to begin with. It doesn't even notice what's going on, and if such a person does notice, it's, everything seems so bland, they would just much rather give themselves back up to thought, and it's just kind of, there, there's no groundedness there, there's no sense of, of, of uh, propriety and, and just being present. And usually someone of that ilk, which we'll talk about characters that form around these feelings, uh, they, they just, they don't have, they don't have any sense of really, of, of establishing themselves on the earth, of, of a sense of being present with something. And uh, so uh, just to, know that there is also pain associated with neutral feelings. And usually when, when people are of that nature, they have a lot of boredom in their life. A lot of just, you know, they're just apathetic to life, sort of lethargic feeling. There's no wakefulness. There's no wanting to meet life. <clears throat> so... Looking at the feelings, okay? So we need to uh, know what the feelings are that we're going through. Now, uh, as I was mentioning uh, intuition, I just want to bring this point because many of us think that we have this sense of intuition. Well, we do have a sense of intuition, but we're looking at it in the wrong place. We're usually looking at it in relationship to subtle feelings that are going on in us. Maybe we have had a bad experience with somebody who looks like the person that's just come into our view. And there's this unpleasant generalization that now is imparted to this new person, even though I've never met them. And we sense, ah, I have an intuitive sense of this person, when actually it is just a reconditioning from someone else we knew who reminds us of this person. But because it's happening so quickly, we just pass over it and think that we have a very strong intuition about this person, place, or thing. And we give ourselves much more credit than deservedly we should. Now, when I say that there is an intuition, when the screen is clean and there is discernment, so that feelings are not capturing the moment with their subtle innuendos and thoughts and preconditioned ideas, then there is a way that clarity of seeing sees through much of the performance that someone else has so that you can see through to what that person is bringing to the situation in ways that your thought-induced mind could not. And that clarity of perception from a different vantage point seems like they're reading me. You know, and what that means is that somebody has the discernment to see clearly what is there where most of us don't. But I also want to talk a little bit more about how it is uh, that we, um, we keep our relationship to life based within the feelings we have of life, but not about the connection we have with life. Remember in meditation... The, the view, the journey, is really towards interconnectedness. Interesting article on the New York Times 
I sent out to a few of you, which took a group of meditators, very, they had very little meditation, like six classes of meditation or something. I can't quite remember the, but it was very small amount. And then they put them in a room uh, with three seats, uh, two people who had not meditated and one person who had. And they brought in somebody who had a disability. And the person who had meditated was something was 50% more likely to give a, get up and give the person their seat than the two people who had not. And they talked about it in this article as the beginning of connection, the beginning of really sensing the connectedness, the we nature of life rather than the I nature of life. And they, if you talk to those meditators, I guarantee you after six weeks of meditation they would have no conscious relationship to be able to talk about that at all. They are acting from something else that was allowing them to give up the I. So I want to say that for, because some of you don't feel like you've really seen the I or got a sense of the me or have gone very far down the line of selflessness. Well, I say you keep sitting and you're, it does it for you. It's already working in, in on you. It's already doing it. Your sense of empathy, your sense of compassion, your sense of feeling the pains of the world, that is what it looks like uh, when the screen is cleared and there is more discernment than confusion in the mind. So just because the final lattice work hasn't broken, you haven't broken through the final haze, the fog of self, doesn't mean that you aren't well on your way to doing just that. Now, a few things about feeling in the little time we have left. One is that uh, when you are a culture like we are that seeks feelings for their sense of satisfaction, then we keep trying ref to refine those feeling tones so that they're ever more satisfying. The problem with that is that in doing so, you're also defining through exclusion, those things which are going to be unsatisfying, right? As you narrow the field of what satisfies you, you expand the field of what isn't. And so just be careful. Just be careful, especially if you're some connoisseur of something, like chocolate, like I am. It has to be 72%, you know, and nothing else works. Nothing else, sat or wine, or food, or... I mean, it's endless, and it becomes addictive. And needing that extra percentage for you to be satisfied, and there's no end to that. And in doing so, you're actually becoming more contracted within that space, not less. So that's a, the other one. The other thing I want to mention is that uh, these feeling tones keep us from a sense of belonging. And what I've noticed in, over the years in the interviews I've conducted is that at the heart of what most of us long for is a sense of belonging, a sense of groundedness, a sense of home, a sense of being, okay, I'm here, this is it, this is, this is, I don't need to go anywhere, that, that sense of at-homeness. And the pursuit of these feelings 
stir that. There's an agitation that's always present that we can feel that keeps somebody from finding their home, finding that sense of belonging. And so the pursuit of feelings, as we try to tweak the feeling to make it ever more perfect, we are actually in the pursuit of a perfect feeling. We want, you know, nothing's quite, this isn't, uh, and of course there isn't one, and it's mentally induced, and whatever you found it anyway, it would change, and it wouldn't stay or be static long enough for you to actually enjoy it for very long. It's all, it's all built on a, it's all built on a, a sliding slope. And so just, just, just become aware of that, that the life, the sense of my lack of belonging may have a much deeper root than maybe my family history. And I've always blamed it on, you know, whatever. And our family history. It could have a deeper root for that. And that it's, there's this kind of agitation behind us because somehow our life hasn't been fulfilled because we haven't settled on that place that can be acclaimed as now it's all here. And there isn't. There isn't one. That's the nature of it. Now, okay, there isn't one. There isn't a place that will provide that. If you, if, you, if you really knew that, you would stop seeking it. This is it. This is the temperature. That's it. I had a friend who was driving her children to work in a traffic jam. And her children needed, weren't driving her kids to work. She was driving her kids to various, and she was trying to get to work. So she was in a traffic jam and your kid needed to be at school and this one needed to be at some, I don't know, three kids, three different places they need to go and she was late for work. So horns were honking and I don't remember the climate but it was probably horrific. And anyway, she was sitting there and she turns around and the kids are screaming that they're not on time and she says, it's always going to be like this. Okay, you see that clears it out. That's belonging. You see, that's, that's the other way to approach it. So it's, this is never going to be different. It can't be different. How can it be different? It's only different in our imagination. It cannot be different. Now can never change. This is it. Period. End of the search. See, what does that leave you feeling? Despondent? Like, my God, my life is this? You know, what, what does it leave you with? <laughs> I don't care where it leaves you, belong to it. Belong to where it leaves you. It drops you off, it leaves you in a mess. Now deal with that. Because when you start looking at the mess from dependent origination, it's not much of a mess. When you start looking at the mess from the narrative of what you expected, then it is a mess. But it's never a personal mess. See, when we make a feeling personal, we're trying to bring it closer to us. We're trying to get the rub to be close. We're trying to get it right up against us. We're trying to merge with the feeling. Then that's now it's my feeling, you see. There's, the less distance, the more we think it will feed us. It will allow that feeling to enter. But in duality, in separation, there's no mergence. 
This is as close as it gets. This is it. Now you, you can either claim all the personalizations that have gone on for so long, or you can really look at this thing and say, you know, there's something else in the room now that is far more accessible, far, worth far more, far more available than the pursuit of the limitation of feelings. What have I been doing? But it's not a what have I been doing, I'm so despairing. It's what have I been doing, turn around and do something else. Open up to this thing in a completely different way. Now you sense something. But yeah, it's not going, it doesn't taper off. You don't decide, to, you've been going, traveling this thing for 40 years, you know, and it's been a good ride, and the car still it's, needs some shocks. And, <laughs> but you can still, you know, it's like, I'm out of here. This is, not, this is not going to be defined this way anymore. It's a redefinition, redefinition of what life is about, where it's taking us, our orientation to it, what we want from it. It's a reorientation. A complete paradigm shift. It changes everything. As it You see? So now we can come back and we can use our meditation towards that paradigm shift, not towards chasing feelings. When you're sitting in meditation and you think, oh, this is a really awful meditation, what's awful about it? Where are the feelings meeting the experience as unpleasant? What's the experience of unpleasantness? Do we even know that? Or we just say, oh, this is a, oh, I, oh God, another 20. See, <laughs> so we don't even know it. Is it a difficult emotion? Is it self-hatred? Doesn't matter. These are just our conditioned phenomena. You sit with it long enough, it comes off. It came on, it comes off. Lima beans I don't like, lima beans I do like. I hate me, now I love me. It's the same thing. Same thing. But I want you to get a sense of what's driving your life. So I brought this homework to bear upon personality types, which I don't like to talk about because it fabricates a whole personality that we're trying to eliminate. But I want you to get, <laughs> but I want you to get a feeling. I want, I want you to get a sense <laughs> of, what, of what the character you have is what's been driving it. Now, all three feeling tones are going to drive you at different times, but there's usually one that's predominant. And so the homework was made at that basic level so that you could step into this thing. Oh, my God. And so what would you expect, you know, if, you're, if you are driven by unpleasant feelings, then you're going to see the world pessimistically. The glass is half, half empty. It's going to be like anything new is going to be, oh, this won't work. It's going to be kind of a negative tone to life. And there's going to be a kind of, you know, a sort of indignation to life. 
uh, as if you're, you're always surmounting some kind of obstacle. There's always a problem that you have to deal with. Okay, so that's one. Then if you're neutral feelings, you don't know where you are. <laughs> you're kind of, you just messing everything. You don't really know or see what's been going on. You're not really showing up for your life. You're just kind of lost in the haze of your own thinking. And then if you're greedy, you're going to be an optimist. You're going to think of things, the better, how life will be improved, how it's going to get better, how my life, how I'm moving forward into something that will be better than what it is now. And how that sense of attitude, that sense of forms into character. It forms into the way we look at life, the way we waken out of our alarm clock. Do you know that about yourself? We are a set of conditions. We are not somebody in there who is pessimistic. We are a set of conditions in which this has been built into our conditioning. And because of that, there is a solution. There's a stepping out of conditions. So I leave you with that. Thank you all. Can we sit for a minute or two? I want you to get a sense as we're going through these links of the possibilities that are there to cross over this conditioned network to step out of it. And we begin with the application of mind in awareness of presence of mind Where or what are you not willing to look at? What do you avoid? Intrapersonally, interpersonally? Okay, if there are any questions or comments, I'd be happy to try to answer. You see, you don't get more conscious by wishing something weren't there. <laughs> wishing something weren't there is the act of being unconscious. So you get cued in to some of the symptoms of being unconscious, and avoidance is one of them. Yes, sir.
Having the what? A neutral feeling. Right. The, the question is about the example I gave where the woman was in the car and she was having a difficult uh, moment with the children and how is that surrender different than neutrality, right? So it's the, what happened to her was not she didn't switch feeling tones to be neutral. She switched paradigms. That's a very different, she stepped out of conditioning, not changed the conditioning. Now some of us try to change the conditioning within the situation by saying, oh, okay, this too shall pass, you know, I'm in a car here, this too shall pass. So we're trying to habituate or trying to adapt to the situation by altering our feelings about the present situation. You see that? But that's adaptation is just having different narrative about the same situation. It's not stepping out of a narrative. When you step out of a narrative, you go into quiet. This will never change, period. I don't know if it gets better or worse. Or and when you do that, you step out of feeling tone. When you are quiet, there is no feeling tone. There's no feeling tone in, in, uh, in presence. Not that, I mean, the system's still working. It's just that there's no elaboration. There's absolutely nothing that it moves from. Okay? It's just quiet. You're not contesting anything. The contesting it is taking the feeling tone to the next step. Right? So that's the difference between surrender and adaptation, which is a very important question because mostly what we do as meditators is adapt. We're all very knowledgeable about the Dharma and how Dharma works. And you know that things do change and so we'll talk ourselves in to a perception of that change prior to it actually occurring, which takes the heat off of it occurring because we know it's not going to last that long. You see? And so, okay, you know, be with things as they are. I mean, there's a lot of different ways. Just be with things as they are. Just, okay, just, yeah. But then what happens is that there's a kickback. It's not acceptance. It's resignation that comes up. I've resigned myself to being in the car. And that's as close as an, an adaptive response can bring us to surrender. Is a resignation. Do you see that? So that's it. It's not going to get any better than this. Or maybe it'll change. It will change. You know? So I'm, I'm going to resign to being where I am until it does change. This, this is a... I don't know how to... You know, it's, it's breaking the mold. It's not continuing to let our minds drift in the same processes that it has occurred. The drifting that we allow our minds to do, the imaginative response we keep adapting ourselves to and our life to, is a continuation of the same theme of the dependent origination. It's never ending. We just go from one, one experience to another with a constant theme of ourselves in the middle and having this narrative and the experiences of... Uh, That's why because sometimes it's very enjoyable within this drift it means things can get very pleasant and sometimes it doesn't it's about 50-50 on this plane of existence 
And so you can't get too comfortable because you know where, when's the next other shoe going to drop here. You know, it's like... Which is a good thing because if it were only pleasant, then it would be very hard to shake that. It would be very hard to understand how that's a limitation. Even though there would be a pain associated with it, there would be too much pleasure around for us to acknowledge that pain. We just keep covering it over with the next pleasant thing. Yes? That's an ab adaptive response. That's a re it is awful, isn't it? Mm -hmm. To tell yourself it's not awful is a lie. Right? So that's not going to do anything. Right? How about just showing up for the awfulness? Do you know what I mean by showing up? No. Have you taken the beginning class? I don't mean to put you on the spot, dear, but... You, you need to know how to use the practice to show up for what's going on inside of you. All of us need to in the room. To what, what is it feeling of awful? I can be present to awfulness, just being aware of it. I don't expect it to change. This is it. Now, funny things happens when you do that. When you show up for the awfulness, it's not so bad. It was when I was fighting in contention with the awfulness that made it awful. And when it's seen as awful, there's some space that we're giving that and it doesn't, it gives us, there's a lightness that comes in and you can step out of it at some point very easily. Like, you know, I may be in a mood or something or Ellen, and I'll say, Ellen, you're in a mood, or Ellen will say, Rodney, you're in, and I'll go, I don't want to hear that, and then I'll go, okay. <laughs> I'm, in a, I'm in a mood, and I'll just, I, I own it. And in relatively little time, in a minute, we're not in it anymore. Even though it's, you know, there's a righteousness of wanting to be in it, because the reason we're in the mood is because circumstances aren't working, and we have all the reasons to be in the mood all around us, this is the reason. You want five reasons why I'm in this mood? Mostly it's you. <laughs> okay? So that's the way we like to do it. But if you say, okay, let's just go to the mood. Now you've cut the blame and the accusation And there's nothing substantiating it anymore. It doesn't have any way to move itself. To move itself, you have to be ignorant of it. You can't see it. You have to just assume it as part of your dialogue, as part of your old momentum. God, I'm in a terrible mood today. I've been in all day long. I've been in a terrible mood. I don't lie. That's the momentum. That's what we have to arrest ourselves to. Arrest it. Okay, let me see what's going on in. See, now it's dead. It has nowhere to feed. It can't, it can't. You see that? 
Now practice it. It doesn't do any good if you just see it and you never use it at home. You're, 20 years from now, you will, well, I, knew, I see that. <laughs> well, great, but use it. Put it to work. <laughs> yes. Of the anger? Yeah. Is that always, is that there, but you're just not seeing it because you're, you're reacting on it? So yes. It's all, the, the, the pain of the anger is always there. She said that she's had a, had a moment in which she stopped herself in the middle of the anger. Anger is a hard one because mostly in this culture, there's a lot of anger because we feel so self-diminished. We don't have any power, you know. Everything's being told to us what we should wear, what we, who we are. So we, we feel very diminished as people. And in the moment of anger, you don't feel diminished. You feel like you're on top of the game. And so we're loath to give that up because it's the one moment in which we have our day. We can have our. We can say what we want to say and do what we want to do. And by God, we're right, you know. So it's a very hard one to do it hard to do. But if you're going to pick that one, then the backlash, there's a tsunami that hits you when you stop. You can feel the contraction of the body. You can feel, you know, you can feel the, the focused energy of it. Okay, so here's, here's one thing that helps with anger. is to realize that anger is based in grief. What I'm really feeling is that something I wanted to, that I cared about, didn't happen, was taken from me, or d didn't occur. And there's a moment of grief. And my rebellion against the vulnerability of the grief is to be angry about it. Right? And that keeps us from feeling the vulnerability of not having. And so instead of feeling n the not having, the loss, I go to anger from a sense of strength and the sense of being anything but vulnerable. You see? So when you realize that anger is grief and you can switch the channels a little bit and say, what, is that, what did I just lose that I care about? Or what didn't happen right there that I, I wanted you, you know, I really care about what, you know, all of that. Whatever it is. Then you can feel the real pain of what you're missing. The communication will straighten up because you'll say, You'll talk from the sense of loss and vulnerability rather than the sense of accusation and blame. And the connection will be that much stronger. Okay, all.